Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm going to be speaking today with Jonathan Taplin, Director Emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab and a former tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band, as well as the producer of films, including Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. And uh, we're going to be talking about his latest book, The End of Reality, how four billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse, Mars, and crypto. And you can learn more about all of John's work. And he's had a couple of other wonderful books about his past life as producer and road manager come out in the last couple of years. You can find uh, information on them at his site as well. Um, and you can learn more, as I said, at John Taplin, J-O-N-T-A-P-L-I-N.com. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, provocative, innovative, hopefully solution-oriented aspects of politics, economics, environment, science, health, and culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net. T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. As I was preparing for this conversation, I found myself feeling at times shaky, sad, near tears, actually. I say that this show that I've been doing now for over 25 years is about a world that just might work, but that starts with pursuing the truth. And so I end up dealing with a lot of bad news along the way. And this week it got to me. So I'm going to tell you a few things in addition to preparing for this show that I think led me there. We're posting, pretty much as we speak, a conversation recorded a week or so ago with Jeff Goodell, whose newest book, The Heat Will Kill You First, was released in July, the hottest month in recorded history. And when it comes to climate, Goodell makes clear that the assumption that we will do what we need to do in time and things will go back to normal is a profound misunderstanding of this moment. CO2 is not smog. We cleaned up the air and conditions got better. That's not going to happen with CO2. CO2 is up there basically forever. No matter how fast or how well we clean up our act, what we've already put up there has brought us to the unprecedented and unpredictable place that we now find ourselves. These extremes and disasters are here to stay. Now, I probably knew that already at some level, but I hadn't understood it in my gut before. I know Paul Hawken with Drawdown and Regenerative Agriculture aimed to pull carbon from the atmosphere, but Goodell's point is well worth taking because, A, it's the truth, and because it brings home the stakes, the responsibility, the urgency. Yesterday, I read a longish Robert Reich piece on the lack of attention to or the valuing or the striving for the common good, how we turned our backs on a post-New Deal flourishing middle class and fed capitalism's worst tendencies by allowing it to write its own rules, as it has at least since Citizens United, a short-term shareholder return at the expense of all other stakeholders. And as government is intentionally sabotaged at every turn, it proves unable to deliver enough for enough of the people to win their trust, and things only get worse. And I also knew the story Reich was telling, but it made me a little sick to take it in this time. I read polls that show Trump and Biden even, and then McConnell has what looked like petty mal seizures. And we only know about the ones on camera. And I think these will cost Biden votes. 
I read some numbers that say a majority of every kind of voter, except perhaps his family, are at the very least concerned about Biden's age and health. Many wish he weren't running again. And if McConnell's freezing scares them and that reduces eagerness to vote for Biden or to vote at all, we could face the unimaginable a second Trump presidency. And then preparing for this conversation, there's something crazy about focusing on just four billionaires as the ones behind the deep troubling direction of our society. And whether or not these four are precisely guilty as charged, the trends that Taplin writes about in which the four are front and center, AI, crypto, transhumanism, and colonies on Mars deserve to be addressed. All of the specifics of the stories John tells leads him to this conclusion. We face a choice of two visions of the future. Are we an extractive or a regenerative society? Have we given up on Earth, democracy, and each other? Or are we going to come together to deal with the enormous challenges we face? And as I list them on this show, uh, fairly often, inequality, climate change, an unhealthy relationship with the rest of nature, pandemics and public health, social and racial division and tribalism, crippled government and endangered democracy. It is deeply disheartening to see the power, the wealth and the expertise of leading players in this game of life focusing on escape, whether from government regulation with crypto, from reality with VR, from this planet with travel to Mars, or from the very bounds of human existence with cyborgian transhumanism. I had hoped that the shared vulnerability we experienced during the pandemic might bring us together as the experience of the Depression and World War II seemed to do in the 20th century, leading to that thriving middle class and shared prosperity. Instead, we confronted our common threat with only more tribalism and distrust. I always assumed that if we could move public opinion to the point where a majority or large majorities began to favor the policies and the actions that would produce well-being, we might respond effectively and fairly and justly to our big challenges. Instead, minority rule whether through gerrymandering, misinformation, or the unethically stacked Supreme Court, has moved the goal line, and the common good slips further and further away. John believes, as many do, that history is cyclical. The questions that seem to be haunting me with particular intensity these days, how have we let this happen on our watch, and will we turn things around in time? Jonathan Taplin is the Director Emeritus at the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, former tour manager for Bob Dylan and the Band, producer of films, including, as I said, Mean Streets, but also the great music documentary, The Last Waltz, featuring the uh, late Robbie Robertson and the band, Vim Vendors Until the End of the World, an expert in digital media entertainment. He's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, sits on the California Broadband Task Force and the Los Angeles City Council on Technology and Innovation. He's the author of Outlaw Blues, Adventures in the Counterculture Wars, Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, and his latest, The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Welcome, Jonathan Taplin, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Be here, Terrence. And let me tell this, we're recording this conversation Tuesday, September 5th. I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas we talk about. And obviously just citing some of your, you know, your bio and these different aspects of, uh, of the world that you've been uh, an important part of. Can you tell us a little bit how you see your path 
to the work you do today. And, and you can mention turning points, <laughs> mentors, moments of decision, that sort of thing. So we get to know who we're talking to. Well, you know, I started out after I got out of Princeton working for Bob Dylan and the band living in Woodstock, New York, before the Woodstock Festival. Um, the culture of the 60s was very optimistic and um, essentially oppositional culture. It was a culture that was not accepting of uh, the world of LBJ or Richard Nixon and, and saw itself as setting up a way to live life that was different. Um, and that slowly went away. And obviously in the 80s, it almost completely disappeared. And so, you know, I always thought that technology might be a real benefit to a kind of democratization of culture. The whole premise of the internet as it was being built with U.S. government money from the Defense Advanced Research Project was that it would be a democratization of, of media. Because at that time, when you and I were growing up, there were three television networks. There was, you know, maybe six or seven music companies, maybe 10 book publishers. And, and that didn't seem like a lot. You know, that seemed fairly concentrated. And so, but the Internet turned out to be a, a false promise of decentralization. So today, Google has a 92% market share in search advertising. Uh, Facebook controls four of the large, five largest social networks. Uh, and, you know, Elon Musk controls not just Twitter, but the only company that provides transportation to the space station by rockets, uh, the only company that is providing satellite uh, connectivity for the Ukrainian army. And he pretty much does whatever he wants to do with when he decided that, uh, as Ronan Farrow wrote last week, and as I wrote in my book, when he decided that the, the Ukrainians were getting too close to the Russian border, he geofenced their uh, satellite connectivity so they, they couldn't communicate when they got within 15 miles of the Russian border. He didn't want to piss off Putin. Yeah, so, and I just I'm going to cut in for one second because, you know, I don't want that to go without without focus. This is, as you point out, one man, uh, an individual and his company that's controlling the international communications in a war. Yeah. So, you know, where I come to is that I came to the conclusion long time ago when I wrote Move Fast and Break Things was that a few internet billionaires had much too much power and that they made the, the kind of robber baron era of Rockefeller and, and Carnegie and those uh, looked like child's play um, because not only were they making um, astonishingly large amounts of money because their companies had uh, gross margins of sometimes as high as 80% <laughs> compared to, say, Walmart that has a gross margin of 30%, um, but they also had a political agenda. And, you know, Worse is that the social networks that they all financed and, and have made lots of millions of dollars from um, have obscured the very notion of truth. Uh, there's an aphorism at the beginning of my book, which is from Terrence, uh, Timothy Snyder of Yale. It says, to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then all is spectacle. The biggest wallet pays for the most blinding lights. 
So these are the biggest wallets paying for the blinding lights. And so when Elon Musk goes on Twitter to yesterday and says the Jews and the ADL are responsible for the problems I'm having at X, at Twitter. Uh, and he basically blames the fact that nobody wants to advertise on his platform on the ADL, on the Anti-Defamation League. <laughs> Never imagining that the fact that he fired all the people who were supposed to control content management systems uh, as soon as he came in and said, I, this is going to be a free speech zone. And the ADL noticed almost immediately that the amount of anti-Semitism on the platform went through the roof. And it's their responsibility to call that out and say, this is happening. The fact that they happened to call it out to big advertisers that were advertising on Twitter is a good responsibility on part of the yeah. And now Elon is using the old, you know, neo-fascist trope, all oh, the Jews are screwing me. And uh, to me, it's it's astonishing that we have to even think about this. I, I want to just double back to something before we dig in here. And that is uh, we lost Robbie Robertson within the last, what, couple of weeks. Uh, and I just wanted, um, I mean, I've got a chance to speak to someone who worked on the last waltz, who obviously was, you know, you, you guys probably lived together or very close to each other in Woodstock. Some reflections on uh, on Robbie Robertson uh, and that time. Well, he was an extraordinary songwriter, um, one of the great guitar players. Bob Dylan once said he was a mathematical guitar genius. Huh. Uh, he didn't play like a lot of the other famous guitar players. He, he was much more spare in the way he built his solos. Uh, but he also inculcated the the kind of world that Bob Dylan had created for them uh, during the era in 1968, when they were all what we used to call woodshedding. They went to a, a little house called Big Pink in Saugerties outside of Woodstock. And, and just worked on new music. And a lot of it was Bob's new music. But in that period, Bob used to bring them lots of folk tunes and lots of other music that they, as the Hawks, Levon and the Hawks, had not been exposed to. And Robbie just soaked it all in. And out of that came The Weight and Up on Cripple Creek and all these extraordinary songs that feel like they're torn from the roots of Americana. And in fact, I'm on the board of the Americana Music Association and Foundation. And and I believe that that all started in Big Pink. You know, that's. Yeah. I mean, it was it was almost alchemical. Yeah. You know that that yeah. this guy who had is he Canadian or what? what yeah, he yeah. was Canadian. This Canadian living in New York and it ends up somehow creating but i don't think creating that's why i say alchemy channeling yeah a, a feeling almost look, he 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 got some of that feeling from levon helm who For was sure. but but he also learned it from meeting sonny boy williamson in in the deep south or or you know a kind of channeling that weird mixture of blues bluegrass country music that all came together uh, and is is so much a part of what we now call Americana. So, you know, I, I mean, obviously, I, it was a real blow to to lose Robbie. Sure. But in another sense, he lived pretty vital life. 
he made it to 80, which in the world of rock and roll is seen <laughs> to be a victory. You know? That's true. And so many die at 27. Especially when we lost so many people in their 20s, you know, yeah. uh, back in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, if I did uh, music in these podcasts, I'd be playing some band or some of his solo stuff, which I just want if people if people didn't pay attention over the years um his first solo album i think is just fabulous what about what about now and that sort of thing um so we spoke when uh move fast and break things came out and um it, 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 it's interesting how often the title which of course was not original it was tell people it was well it was zuckerberg's yeah an exhortation to his young troops to right. not not do things carefully just go ahead and do it it's kind of a right right ted lasso puts up believe mark zuckerberg's puts move fast and break right right um and 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 i'm just saying i i refer to that book i refer i refer to what you know what it was uh revealing digging into and so on and um and this seems like a natural uh a progression from that for you, how did this book happen? And a question that I often ask in that regard is, was there a moment when you said, I got to write this? Uh, what was that first itch that just had to be scratched? Well, I mean, look, I've come to the conclusion that um, social media created this world where online mobs create chaos, spark runs on stocks, drag millions of people down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories. And the people behind that were making billions of dollars. And I just thought, well, look, this is a socially destructive kind of business model. <laughs> and you can see it in the statistics of teenage suicides, um, female self-harm, all of the things that Jonathan Haidt and all these other people have written about. Uh, it's not done a good thing. And and it all gets stemmed from when Facebook puts the like button on the the service. And and so then you can approve or disapprove of things. And um so it then be cre created this kind of new narcissism. And then I realized that the real narcissists were people like Elon Musk. You know, the, he has this phrase, you know, fake it till you make it. And, you know, that's kind of been the way he's he's built his business. He always comes out with a great hype. You know, he was going to go to Mars in 2020. He was that, that was he was going to be there. You know, I, I mean, so uh, he was going to bore a tunnel from San Francisco to Los Angeles that would be ready now. Uh, and and it would take you there in an hour. Uh, and, 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 and whatever happened finally, to the Hyperloop? Yeah. When he finally revealed the Hyperloop, he got some journalists and they got went down in the tunnel and there was a Tesla car sitting there. And they got in the Tesla car and drove over an incredibly bumpy road at, at 30 miles per hour. And then they would say, well, where's the Hyperloop? And he never mentioned it again. So <laughs> these guys are hype artists. Elon Musk had... You know, he didn't invent Tesla, even though he'd like you to believe that. He bought into a company called Tesla that someone else had invented the first car, the Roadster. And then he 
threw the guy out after he got control of the company um, and then took all the credit for the thing. He he claims that he's a libertarian, but he's actually a crony capitalist of the first order. All of the money for SpaceX comes from the U.S. government through NASA. All of the money for Starlink comes from various governments around the world uh, using the Starlink. The pure profit of Tesla comes not from selling cars, but from selling green credits to other automobile makers who don't have as good a fleet, you know, mileage standards yeah. do. And he, and he makes about $5 billion a year on that. And that's the difference. So, right, right. I, I want you to explain that one, because I bet that one, most people, in other words, I, I would guess most people thought you were going to say, uh, makes the, the, what provides the margin of success for Tesla is the tax credits, uh, which is another aspect of all this, right? In other words, uh, you go to buy one car, you don't get that tax credit, you buy an electric car and, and you do, et cetera. Yeah. But, but it's something even, even deeper and, you know, crazier than that. Explain it a little more. So, so each manufacturer is supposed to have a, a general fleet average of mileage per gallon. And none of them actually make that with the exception of Tesla, right? So the government has allowed General Motors to buy from Tesla carbon fleet average credits to the tune of, of a couple of billion dollars a year that they pay Tesla to pretend like some of those cars are theirs. Uh, it's insane. It's just a way to get around the rules, you know, uh, but Elon takes big advantage of it. Uh, yeah, and as I said in in my, in my introduction, you know, when um, when capitalism can set its own rules, um, this is this is the the era we're in, and and that's one of them. And I just want to mention to people who are noticing the similarity: this is a lot like carbon offsets, right? Where some corporations buy, you know, maybe they bought some land in South America that maybe wasn't going to be cut down or, or was going to be cut down. But but the, the, the research and it, a lot of it has come out quite recently is that these offsets are uh, BS, garbage. It's a cheat on the planet, a cheat on the system. And this right. is just another one of those. It, you're, right. you're right. As you describe it, it's insane. I'm supposed to meet a certain standard. And if he exceeds the standard, I can buy his excess success. I mean, it's just crazy. So the craziest thing that Elon does is he wants us to go to Mars. Now, when we ask him why he wants to go to Mars, he says we need to be a multi-planet species. Now, his thesis is that the Earth is crashing and it's going to just die off. And so we need to have a another place to go save ourselves. So in first off, the first mission to Mars, say, take 100 people up there, would cost $10 trillion. That's with a T. Um, that's more than the GDP of half the world, you know. And the point is that not only would we have to take these people up there, then we'd have to build a structure for them to live under because the radiation levels on Mars are so extreme that you would get cancer in like 15 minutes. There is, needless to say, no oxygen up there. So you'd have to ship all the oxygen up there. Then you'd somehow have to figure out how to get back to Earth. So you'd have to 
somehow get a rocket that would then be rebuilt, refueled on Mars. I mean, you're assuming there's some kind of magic mineral on Mars. And, and for what? You know, and, and so, uh, you know, there's this old saying in NASA, no buck Rogers, no bucks. So, you know, JPL, and I spoke to the guys at JPL, has had people, has had landers, you know, rovers on Mars for 10 years. And they do a very good job of doing, doing amazing stuff. Yeah. Doing and they don't need any oxygen. They don't have any radiation cancer problems. And you don't need to get them back to Earth. Yeah, they ain't coming home. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, this idea that you've got to have people go up there, and this is Elon's pitch that this is brave, bold, new transformation. It's, it's total nonsense. Now, I don't mean to just pick on Elon because he's not the only crony capitalist. Peter Thiel has a company called Palantir, which is basically the greatest spy machine in the history of uh, American companies that basically does data work for police departments, governments, all sorts of other things. But all his money for Palantir comes from governments. I mean, a few a few corporations tried Palantir for a while and then dropped it because they found they were getting no value for the amount of money. But for some reason, Teal promulgated the the point of view that Palantir found Osama bin Laden through data mining, which was to total nonsense. But the point is, there are still governments that are paying for Palantir's services. And now Mark Andreessen, who was just a, a, a venture capitalist, he is, of course, one of the leaders of the cryptocurrency boom. His platform, OpenSea, is the leading seller of NFTs, which is one of the great scams in the world. You, if you bought that Bored Ape uh, NFT uh, two years ago for $50,000, you probably could sell it for $10 today if you were lucky. Um, and, and you know, so, I mean, and now Andreessen, of course, is building most of the software for the autonomous drones and other autonomous weapons otherwise known as killer robots that were working really hard to deploy all over the world. There was a piece in the New York Times last week uh, on these new drones that would fly off the wing of an F-86 or an F-14. And, and because they're cheaper to make, the theory is that when we invade, when the Chinese invade Taiwan, we will deploy hundreds of these small bombers. But of course, they will make the decision through AI when to pull the trigger. No humans will be involved in that. It's not even like the guys in Nevada in the trailers who are firing the drones now. This will all be done by AI. And that's the software that Mark Andreessen is making. So these, this, this other illusion is that you can fight wars without having any people in them and no one will get killed. Right. And, and my guess is, again, uh, a government funded project. Oh, totally. Completely. Yeah. So we got. Yeah, we got all four of them. Now, maybe Zuckerberg doesn't make as much of his money from the government as the other three, but he makes it from the line that is, is so uh, memorable not necessarily original, but memorable from uh, move fast and break things, which is if the service is free, you're the product. Right. But here's the other thing that 
the Zuckerberg is convinced of. Um, all four of these guys are big proponents of universal basic income. Yes. Because their vision of the future is that the AI and the robots will do most of the work. Uh, and it's not just blue collar work. Of course, the warehouses will be filled with robots and there will be only five humans controlling 5,000 robots. But they will also, the AI will come for the jobs of lawyers or radiologists or lots of upper class white collar jobs, white collar jobs. And so Zuckerberg believes that a lot of people will be very bored and sitting at home. And so they'll want to go on the metaverse. They'll want to go pretend they're dating Kim Kardashian or pretend they're Tony Stark flying off, uh, you know, in the in the Iron Man suit. And this is all possible. He will rent you Tony Stark's house, you know, and you can live a full fantasy life for seven hours a day because you don't have any work. Um, that to me is a disturbing dystopian reality on such a level that I can't even imagine what it would do. Well, the film that that one brings up to me um, is not Iron Man, but Wally, right? right? Those fat, bulbous people. Right. I'm sorry if I'm being fattest right. here, but those those people right. that don't seem to ever emerge from their barca loungers. Right. Um, that's that's what that's their vision of the future. Right. Right. And, and, and let, look, me, let me let me take we're about the halfway point, John. Let me tell okay. people this is free form, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally speaking with Jonathan Toplin. He's director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab. He's uh, got a past in rock and roll and movie producing. Um, uh, his uh, previous book about these issues, Move Fast and Break Things, is is an excellent um look into all of this. And we're talking about his latest book, The End of Reality, How Full Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. And those four billionaires are Peter Thiel, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Andreessen, and Elon Musk. Okay, um, I, I stole the mic from you as you were going to respond to my Wally image. So I agree with you about Wally. I mean, th that kind of dystopian future is, is actually here now. Uh, a Princeton uh, social scientist named Angus Deaton has written a book about deaths of despair, which is essentially the fact that people in their 30s and 40s, uh, having had their jobs moved to Mexico or China or somewhere else, end up spending a lot of time at home uh, watching porn or playing video games, uh, drinking eventually sometimes leads to opioids and eventually it leads to death, suicide, overdose, accidental, whatever. And that the rise in deaths and despair in the last 10 years has been unbelievably like off the charts. And this is really a problem that comes from um, this workless future. I mean, it's one thing to say, OK, we'll just provide universal basic income, which is Zuckerberg's solution to this problem. But people actually get a lot more out of work than just money. They get a sense of purpose and again, a, a sense of meaning, meaning. Exactly. And these people are are robbing them of their meaning. Let me let me jump in there for a second, Jonathan, because I 
have found myself, and we're probably going back 10 or 15, 20 years now, um, uh, liking the idea of universal basic income, you know, watching when it's ex when an experiment is done, how it seems to actually work. So there must be like there there must be a a a when it's taking someone who is outside of employability, perhaps, um, and and at, at this moment and getting a basic income and not well, the other thing they found in terms of you know you were using sort of health statistics there with the uh, deaths of despair is that um, the fear of how am I going to pay my next bill? How am I going to pay for my car repair? Actually, you know, it threatens our health. Um, so it seemed to me it was a good thing. How do you parse good universal basic income, bad universal basic income? Well, I mean, if you think about giving, you know, five, seven percent of the society who are having we're basically unemployable and giving them some universal income. That's that's one thing. But when you get to the point that you're giving 30% of the society um, universal basic income, you're you're ignoring, you know, the kind of Epicurean thing of what actually makes a good life, you know? Yes. I'm an Epicurean. I, I believe, as as Epicurus said, that there's three things that make a good life. One is the company of good friends. The second is meaningful work that gives you a sense of autonomy. And third is some faith or belief in a higher purpose for your life here on earth. And if you if you have all three of those, you can have a happy life. If you don't have them, it doesn't matter whether you've got money, you're still going to be depressed and, you know, suicidal. That's right. You may not be starving. You may not be afraid of how you're going to pay your next bill, but you will not be living a full life. I, I think even Freud, it was love and work, right? We needed two things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you were, you were dealing with Zuckerberg and his, uh, uh, his vision of people who no longer have to work and, that's a good thing because he and his buddies have basically done away with all the jobs and replaced them with robots and AI and um, but they won't starve uh, and and they can live in their fantasy land. Right. Um, talk about crypto. Talk about crypto and then we'll hit transhumanism. OK, so crypto to me is essentially a, a, a giant pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. So in uh the fall of 2021, when Bitcoin was at $60,000 per coin, Professor Scott Galloway at NYU did some research and found that 2% of the holders of Bitcoin had almost 90% of the existing Bitcoins. So these were the people like Andreessen and Musk who were in on the beginning of the scheme. Um, so what happened late in November of 2021 is that if if you're a football fan like I am, you started to see ads on all the football games. So there was Matt Damon saying fortune belongs to the bold, you know, touting yeah. FX or crypto.com. And there was Tom Brady touting FX and Larry David and uh lebron james and steph curry and they were all telling you 
that your fortune could be made in crypto. And so that was, they spent almost $250 million on TV advertising from about the beginning of November through the end of the Super Bowl at the beginning of February. Uh, there were so many crypto ads on the Super Bowl in February of 2022 that they called it the Crypto Bowl. So what happens? Okay, so the average Joe on the street sees this and says, well, maybe Matt Damon's right. Maybe LeBron James is right. I should invest in this. And so they buy in from the whales. That's what we call the 2%, the whales, who are glad to get rid of their their uh, Bitcoin at 60000 a pop. And they buy in uh, very fast. And all of a sudden, because the whales aren't supporting it anymore, they're, they're actually selling, crypto starts to fall. And by the time we get to late April, early May, crypto has fallen to about 19000 a coin. So you bought in at 60000 and now your coin is worth 19000 that's called a pyramid scheme. Uh, and, you know, quite honestly, the people who know most about this know that there's nothing inherently for purpose in crypto. It's not made for transactions. It's not made for anything. You, you can look at the one country, Ecuador, who tried to make crypto the 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 standard currency for the country and it was a complete failure so um it's it's a scam uh and along with that comes nfts which andreessen is really the one which is 90% of nfts are pirated materials so they're they're images from Walt Disney or Marvel or or Star Wars or all that stuff and they're sold as if they're some unique art object. So you've seen these bored apes. Mm -hmm. so you you buy this thing and it give, and there's a little code next to it and you feel like it's some unique thing, but it's just a digital picture which can be duplicated <laughs> by anybody. So it's a complete fraud. Um, and then you know to go to transhumanism, which to me is the most worrisome. Yes. yes. Um, so Francis Fukuyama has said that transhumanism is the most dangerous idea in the world. And can, can Jonathan, can I jump in? Because I found sure. a, a longer quote from Fukuyama, which you quote, which I want to lay out there. And then, sure. then, then, then I'll bounce it back to you. He says, underlying this idea of the equality of rights is the belief that we all possess a human essence that dwarfs the manifest differences in skin color, beauty, even intelligence. This essence and the view that individuals therefore have inherent value is at the heart of political liberalism. It's the Enlightenment. It's democracy. But quoting Fukuyama again, modifying that essence is the core of the transhumanist project. Go go ahead. So what, what he's saying basically is that the whole notion of the founding of our country, all men are created equal, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is based on this notion that we all kind of have a, a core essence. But if in the transhumanist world, you could live, if you had an extra $20 million, you could live to 160 years of age, which is what Peter Thiel wants. Or if you could take the embryo from the, the that you and your wife have created and have it genetically tested and, and they come back and say, well, 
this has a 60% chance of male pattern baldness. Uh, it will be in the uh, 70th percentile range of the SATs. Uh, it, it will not run very fast because it has a very slow twitch thing. And you say, well, I want to fix all that. Here's here's $5 million, and I want you to take CRISPR, the gene editing tool, right. and make my kid a genius or make him as fast as the fastest runner around or uh, make sure that his hair stays in. Until he's 80, you know, I mean, this is real. This is not uh, science fiction. Now, CRISPR exists and could do these things. Now, ethically, right now, nobody wants to be the first to do it. But that unless, doesn't... unless there were rogue Chinese. And I'm sure there are rogue Chinese people playing around with it. Of course there are. It's just like AI. The One of the guys that I quoted from AI said, there people would rather make history with AI than worry about ending humanity as we know it. Right. And you you, you state that quote that the people working in, is it the purple? The people working in AI, one out of 20, or that I think is a one in 20 chance that it will end civilization. Right, right. But they're more concerned. One in 20. Becoming famous. Yeah. So this transhumanism um, as, as, is this notion of tweaking it genetically. Well, that's one way. Another is uh, this, this notion of downloading um, your consciousness into some sort of computer right. so your consciousness outlives your physical body. Exactly. Um, so this, this is the singularity. So uh, and, and the head engineer at Google says that it will arrive by 2040 so that the AI will be smarter than humans. Um, so a person like, like Peter Thiel, even if he's, he's afraid of dying, he still may upload his consciousness completely into an AI. And so he can keep running his company for the next 200 years. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just the AI will be, we call Peter, right? And and it will yeah. tell people what to do. Uh, I mean, these these things all seem crazy to us, but they're realities. I mean, let's just talk about the reality that's going on today on the streets of Hollywood. You and I drive past Disney and there's there's people picketing. So what is the I believe the core issues are around AI. So Marvel, which is owned by Disney, would love that the idea that it could put every screenplay that Marvel ever made into a large language model and then instead of a screenwriter which they usually have to pay $500,000 for a first draft screenplay. Instead of a screenwriter, they'll have a prompt writer. And this person will craft three very carefully written paragraphs, which will describe, oh, Iron Man goes to meet the Hulk <laughs> and Captain America shows up in Iceland and then, you know, give us some basic plot points. And then in a day, the AI will spit out a screenplay. Now, that screenplay will probably not be much better than the Bob Dylan lyrics that you can ask uh, ChatGPT to write, you know. But what they will do, because there will be, by this point, a lot of out-of-work screenwriters, they will then send it to a real writer and say, we'll pay you 10000 a week for three weeks to make this human. And then that that will do two things. One, it will hopefully 
give it a little bit of originality. And secondly, they'll actually be able to put a human name on it because mm, mm-hmm. a copyright office will not give a copyright to a machine-generated piece of text. Um, right. That's why all the books that are on Amazon that are written by George Jones and ChatGPT are probably written mostly by ChatGPT and George Jones just wrote the prompt. And and by the way, there's probably more than 300 books uh, for sale on Amazon written by ChatGPT. Most of them are either how-to books or mm-hmm. romance novels, which seem to be wow. two uh, genres that are very easily duplicated because they're formulas. And of course, what generative AI believes is that all the world's knowledge is already on the internet. And so all it needs to do is take from that knowledge and remix it in such a way that it creates something new. Um, this, of course, is somewhat ridiculous. I mean, and, you and, and, I are and both... the point you're making is it 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 ignores the whole notion of originality or the creative act. Exactly. The AI will never write like a Rolling Stone. AI will never write Macbeth. It is incapable of doing something original. All it's capable of doing is remixing something that's already been made and redoing it. That's that's why the photographers like Getty Images is suing Stable Diffusion because Stable Diffusion, this image AI generator, took 12 million photographs that Getty owned that had the copyrights on them, downloaded them, ingested them into the model, stripped all the metadata out of them so nobody knew where they came from, and said they did it under the guise of fair use. Right. Uh, Now, this suit, my guess is that Getty's going to win this suit. And eventually, these huge AI models will have to pay for the fact that they downloaded my books and your books and other people's books to train them. Right. And and I mean, and our individual artists are, of course, making the same claim that if you if your AI learned and modeled its uh, its work on my work, um, that's that is dependent on my work. And and, and it's got to be a, a, there's got to be remuneration for that. Let me take you. We've got about five minutes, John. Let me take you to. The point that uh, you make, which is there are two visions of the future, the extractive and the regenerative. And if I just give you the runway, um, let people know we've got a good idea what the what the extractive one looks like. And it's what we've been talking about. And if people think extractive only means oil or coal or, you know, even the the, 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 the precious metals for for electric for for uh, for phones. Data is extracted, and that data is the new oil. But let's talk about that other vision, that positive vision that we hope can emerge. Well, look, the extractive economy, and and, and you think about just Bitcoin, the amount of energy that is used to mine these Bitcoins is unbelievably large. That's why they put these huge data centers near places where there's fairly cheap energy like hydropower or stuff like that. So the notion of data is the new oil is, of course, why Facebook, Google, and other companies are the largest market cap companies in the world. You know, 
because they own so much data. But what's what I see happening is a reaction to this. And I think I call it a resistance. Mm-hmm. And the whole notion, the whole notion is that there's a whole group of people, whether they're farmers, whether they're people who are building new kinds of energy sources, whether they're people who are chefs that are trying to think about what to do, whether they're, uh, you know, acoustic musicians like people at the Americana Music Foundation that I work with, who are trying to build a world in which you do not treat the natural world as capital to be used up for free. And and these people are are just doing that. You know, these people are using the natural world. And, and, you know, Elon Musk says when he gets to Mars, he's going to start mining immediately. So it's the same old story. Yeah. But what, what we want is a different kind of economy that, that is regenerative. And, you know, it starts with things like, you know, renewable energy and stuff like that. But it goes much farther than that in terms of the way, I mean, I see it, a friend introduced me to some a, a woman chef up in uh, Maine who has a, created a, not only a, a Michelin star restaurant, but a whole ecology around her of people growing the vegetables for her, people, uh, you know, aesthetically, uh, you know, raising the animals. All the things that she needs for her restaurant are right there within 20 miles of where her restaurant is. And so some of it's also very kind of local, you know, I mean, I think we're all having to realize, especially those of us in California, that the politics and the culture of of America is not necessarily our politics and culture. And there may come a time where we may have to have a a kind of bear flag republic, uh, a more... uh, and I know this is a loaded word, but a more states' rights point of view. In other hmm. words, California, needless to say, should not have to have the same uh, abortion policy as Mississippi. California hmm. should not have the same uh, auto emissions policy as Alabama. California should not have the same uh, gun regulations as Arkansas. Um, right. And let me just say the things that some of the things I pointed out in the introduction of gerrymandering, misinformation, electoral college, um, Supreme Court hijacked. Um, if we cannot remedy those things, we we may need this alternative path. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we have to secede. It just means right. that we have to say that, as Thomas Jefferson said, is that the states are independent as to everything internal to themselves and are dependent on the United States as to everything that's external, that is the State Department, the Treasury, and the military. In other words, we're going to make our own laws when it comes to uh, the way the schools are run, the way healthcare is provided, all sorts of things that we could do that would be different than this kind of strange rhetoric that is coming out of, as you pointed out at the very beginning, a, a Congress, and especially a Senate, that is a minoritarian institution. You know, I mean, yeah. Norm 
uh, Stephen said that basically by 2030, 70% of the people will live in 15 states. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's just that, that the outrageous that. example. The outrageous example, I believe, is Wyoming with under 600,000 had the same number of senators as California with 35 million. Right. And and short of some kind of constitutional amendment, which, of course, nobody, none of the small states would go for, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. So what right. we have to do is assert that we have the right, you know, if the Supreme Court says, OK, Roe v. Wade is over, that doesn't mean that we have to change our abortion laws in California. That doesn't mean that the Supreme Court should have the ability to make us, if, if we want to outlaw assault weapons, which we have, we should be able to do that. But and I, I would, let me just, we, we were almost at the end, but I do want to say that there is a movement afoot that sees what you're proposing and is trying to make the, uh, either the federal override the state or when the state government uh, in a place like Texas wants to override the progressive cities. So there, there is, you know, there is a movement afoot to stymie what you're talking about. But I think, it, you know, well you're, you're certainly it. opening up a, a possibility. Yeah, I'm well aware of it. But that doesn't mean it's not something that we should be thinking about. That's right. That's right. And and I, we, we've got to bring it to a close. But what you're saying is that we've, we've talked a lot in this about their vision, the extractive earth, as I said, Earth is dead. Democracy is overrated. Um, people can't be trusted. Media is, you know, is not to be trusted. That vision is what we were talking about for most of the show. The vision that the alternative vision, which we see, I, I know you and I both see, and you see it a lot more because you spend time on campus among young people, is a renaissance of craft, creativity, regeneration, vulnerability. And and one last thing, I since we didn't say it quite enough, that you think is essential here is the arts, music. Yeah. Let me just give you an example. A reporter called me uh, earlier this week and said, why is it that all the big tours this summer are led yeah. by women? So you have Taylor Swift and Beyonce, these gigantic tours. And I said, you know, I think the reason is, and, and he also threw in the idea that the Barbie movie was very big. And I said, I think the women are coming at this from a place of vulnerability, from a place of searching, from a place of not having all the answer. Whereas you got these guys like Jason Aldean who say they have all the answers. If you come into my little town, I'm going to kick your ass or, or, you know, uh, you know, young thug boasting about how many people he's killed you know, you, you have these gangster cultures on the male side, and then you have these incredibly vulnerable, open, uh, renaissance. I mean, Beyonce called her tour renaissance. Right. So just right out there and saying, so I, all I can say is, look, I have hope. I really do have <laughs> hope. And, and, and the artists have got, as, as Marcuse said, have got to remind us what can be. Mm -hmm. Not what is. But what can be, that's their role in the world. Yep, yep. And, and and I will let you do one last thing, which is you mentioned that I think it is Martin Luther King's last speech talks about sleeping through the revolution. Right. And just so, you know, I mean, you know basically he said he, he used the, the trope of uh, 
Rip Van Winkle. And he said, you know, Rip Van Winkle went up the mountain and, and there was a tavern with King George's face on the side. And he came down from the mountain 20 years later. And and there was a picture of George Washington on the tavern. And, and he had slept through the revolution. And, and he said, people do that all the time. And you can't do that. This is going on and you have to play your part. You have to stay awake. Can I very can I good? Just one last quote. It's, it's, sure. Albert Camus wrote this about the artists and the role they play in these Renaissance. He said, We are at the extremities now. At the end of this tunnel of darkness, however, there is invariably a light which we already define and for which we have only to fight to ensure its coming. All of us among the ruins are preparing a Renaissance beyond the limits of nihilism yes <laughs> to god's to god's ears john yeah. again the book is the end of reality how four billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse mars and crypto and the website is john taplin j-o-n-t-a-p-l-i-n so there's no h in that john taplin.com for this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work go to terence mcnally.net T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net or a world that just might work.com. All one word, a world that just might work. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually links to uh, 10 or 15 articles to flesh out the conversation, email me at T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at Mac.com or you can subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts and at most of the podcast sites. Uh, you can also sign up for that weekly announcement at my site. You can find years of podcasts there. Archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, to you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, Thank you, Jonathan Taplin, and keep up your good work. My pleasure, Terrence. Hi, this is Randy Rhodes right here on the Progressive Voices Network. The Randy Rhodes Show. Smart, forward, free-thinking, entertaining, bringing you liberal news and opinion that challenges the status quo and amplifies free speech. Every weekday afternoon, 3 to 5 Eastern. Hi, it's Randy Rhodes. Listen to me on the PV live stream or on demand or both on the PV app. Just go to ProgressiveVoices.com or download the Progressive Voices app. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to no longer exists. The industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. I turned up the radio. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. But times have changed. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio. It's the 21st century, 
and at Progressive Voices, we're reclaiming our time. Radio, your way. Progressive Voices, Stephanie Miller, Tom Hartman, Randy Rhodes, Nicole Sandler, Brad Friedman, Mike Malloy, and many more. Download the free Progressive Voices app, now powered by TuneIn. Speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network.